Obviously, we had a good time at Certainty Conference. We've talked all about that. I do look forward to kind of what's ahead, uh, including Wedstrong that, that Todd announced. Um, Jennifer and I will be there, and we'd love for as many of you as, as can be to be there with us. So that's, uh, that's a worthwhile investment uh, into your marriage. Um, you know, our, our own Miss Sherry Trotter will be speaking there in the ladies' breakout group, and and uh, you saw the lineup of, of folks up there, if you could see it. So it'll be, that'll be a good time. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you, and, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Today, we are back in Acts. I hit the sack. I've been too long. I'm glad to be back. And if, if you got that reference, great. If you, if you didn't, it's probably for the best. But after two months uh, away from our study, moving verse by verse uh, through the book of Acts, we're getting back into it this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about what uh, this next section of, of the book of Acts, uh, God's going to show us in that. I hope you're excited too. Um, I understand, you know, you maybe you didn't even know we were getting back into the book of Acts, so, so that's fine. Uh, if you're not excited, you can just let me dream a little bit. But, but before we get into um, our study here at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, I, I do just want to say a quick word about everything that's going on in Israel and, and Gaza Strip there with Hamas and, and all of that. We, we obviously get, you know, questions and, and people asking us things like that, um, you know, and people wonder, you know, is this important? Is this prophetic? Is this something we need to be paying attention to? And, and you know, and of, of course the answer is yes. Um, anything going on like that in the Middle East, uh, you know, involving Israel, it's, it, it's something. You know, it's moving us one step closer to the rapture, ultimately the second coming of Christ. You know, Bibi Netanyahu has, the current Israeli prime minister, he's called this a war, and that, that's, a, a, you know, an important word. It allows him some freedom within his own government to make some moves. But, but at this point, the war is with Hamas the terrorist organization there, you know, stationed in, in Gaza and, and not any surrounding sovereign countries, you know, probably a decent possibility Iran was involved at some level, but even though they claim ignorance. But, but it's, I, I, I might be a little bit surprised uh, at this point if any of those neighboring Arab countries get involved in a real war, real war with Israel. But if they do, um, you know, that'll... That'll be even another step to, to, to pay attention to. Because wartime always provides the opportunity for peace and peace treaters, much more than, than a, a time of peace does. You know, the, there's, they're always working on, you know, peace in the Middle East. And, um, but, you know, if, if Israel decides to, to really come down, which they certainly can, and I think they certainly will at, at some level, um, you know, and take... Hamas and anybody else that would be involved down to their knees, that would, you know, that would open up um, an opportunity for peace. And so it's absolutely noteworthy, you know, in that regard. It's just, it's just another step forward. And at the same time, it doesn't change anything for us, right? We're aware, pay attention to what's going on. Um, but, you know, we're not supposed to be looking for signs anyway, necessarily. We're listening for a trumpet. And so we need to pray for them, pray for the peace, because the Bible tells us to do that. Um, and we, we need to be faithful uh, to serve the Lord, you know, until that Trump, until that Trump sounds. Um, so that's sort of my, my word on Israel. Um, you know, we'll, we'll pray for 
them in a second when we, you know, when we kind of pray for everything. But my advice is to just watch, be aware, keep evangelizing, keep making disciples, not lose focus on what God has for us to do um, today. And, and it's actually a great tie-in to what we're going to see in Acts chapter 8 this morning because we're at a great turning point in this book. In our introduction to the study, I explained to you how Acts is a transition book. It's one of, you know, the three primary transition books in our New Testament. You have Matthew transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You have Acts transitioning from the ministry of Jesus and the Gospels um, into the church age epistles. And then you have the book of Hebrews trans- transitioning out of those Pauline epistles, you know, into the general epistles and more tr- of a tribulation context. And so the book of Acts is, is a key transition book. And it transitioned us from a Jewish focus that you see you know, throughout the Old Testament, the Gospels, to the church, which you see in the Pauline epistles, from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of God, many other transitions occur in that book. And, and chapter 8 is really where we see the transition begin in full force. It now it takes a few chapters to get to the other side of, of things. Uh, but in this chapter, we're going to see an Ethiopian saved and baptized, kind of like us. Uh, we didn't see anything close to that in the first seven chapters. But... You know, we're also going to get to verses like Acts eleven nineteen that says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, what, what we just finished in chapter 7, what we'd be talking about today, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So we'll still read some verses like that, and that verse isn't a contradiction. Uh, we'll explain all that as we move through it. But, but what we're going to see today is change is certainly afoot. And we finish chapter 7 by seeing the stoning of Stephen, right? One of the, the, first, the first named deacon in Acts chapter 6 of the church in Jerusalem. And he was stoned to death in, in Acts chapter 7. And I explained to you how that was sort of the final straw or Israel's final rejection of Christ. As a reminder, Israel has resisted. They rejected Jesus by rejecting the message of three men. They rejected the message of John the Baptist. They rejected the message of Jesus himself. And and now they've rejected the message of Stephen. That's consistent with them rejecting God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Stephen spoke of this final rejection in Acts 7.51. It says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so did ye. So do ye. And as I already mentioned, after this final rejection by Israel, you know, God is moving away from them for the time being, and not forever. I want to be clear about that. We know what Romans 11, verses 25 and 26 says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, it's a key word, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As is, as is written, there shall come out from Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So God will judge Israel during the tribulation, ultimately save um, the remnant of the second coming, establish his new covenant with them that will be in place throughout the millennium. And so that's, you know, kind of what's to come. But starting in Acts chapter 8, running through the rapture of the church, God moves his focus away from Israel, opens up the gospel to the Gentiles and establishes the church as we know it today. So Acts chapter 8 is a very exciting chapter because it's where, where the transition really begins. You know, Acts is a transition book. Acts chapter 8 is really the, you know, the beginning of the transition within the transition. 
And, and we see that in many ways. What we're going to see today is we're going to see the attention move away from the apostles and begin to focus on a man named Saul of Tarsus, who will eventually become the Apostle Paul. But he wasn't the Apostle Paul yet, certainly not here in, in Acts chapter 8. He was Saul, a persecutor of that early church in Jerusalem and those early believers. And, and, and his persecution was severe. We're going you know, to talk about that today. But God uses that. God uses that in a mighty way because we're going to see, and I put this on your outline sheet, we're going to see this morning how that persecution leads to expansion of God's plan and God's message. This is a big deal. This is really huge. But it wouldn't have happened if those first century believers didn't have the correct mindset and viewpoint regarding the circumstances that they were facing in, in life. And so this becomes very critical for us as well. There's just such a great lesson to learn. There's great principles that we're going to see today. Very simple, very practical, but, but just critical to our you know, success in this Christian life, at least you know, from God's eyes. Because if we can't see our circumstances through the lens of the Bible then we're never going to be effective for the Lord and, and fulfill the mission that he's given us in this life. If we're not able to, you know, to, to see everything, all the stuff that we face, whether it be persecution from the outside, whether it be our own internal flesh that we deal with, if we can't see the things that, that, that's going on around us, whether they be in Israel or whether they be in your home, if we can't see them through the lens of the Bible, and we're going to have a skewed view of what God's trying to do. So I've, I've titled today's message, A Mission-Minded Viewpoint. Because that's exactly what we are going to see here uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And it's what we need to learn. It's what we need to learn about this morning. So let's look at it together. And just to set the full context, just to kind of remind us of where we came from, we're going to pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 7. And we'll start at the end. We'll start at verse 57. And then we're going to read down through Acts 8 and verse 8. So here in, in Acts 7, you know, Stephen has his long sermon. It's the longest chapter in, in the book. And it's his final appeal to the leaders of Israel. And, and instead of it affecting their heart, and instead of them then turning back to God, it, it enraged them. And in Acts 7, 57, we read, Then they cried out with a loud voice. This is the, the council, the people. And, and stopped their ears and ran upon him, Stephen, with one accord. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then we pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, obviously Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they were scattered abroad. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. 
And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in a word of prayer and see what he'll, he'll show us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we're thankful to be here today. We're thankful to be back in the book of Acts, back in, in the study that, that you've brought us to. And, and I just pray that you use it in our hearts and in our lives today. We do want to take time just to, just to pray for the situation going on in Israel and certainly just um, you know, the loss of life there. And you know, many of those folks, Lord, we know um, don't know you. And you know, that alone should burden us. Uh, to be more evangelistic in our efforts here and, and as we have opportunity to go out. and So we do pray for the peace um, there. Uh, we pray that, that your hand would be on that situation, Lord. And if it, if it brings us closer to the end, which of course it's, it's part of, Lord, we'll, we'll rejoice in that. And, and uh, we'll look forward to your return. But until then, Lord, find us faithful, um, given us doing, doing the, the mission that you've given us. Um, to do, and, and that's what we're going to learn about today. So I pray that, that you use your word to, to prick our hearts this morning and to, to teach us what we need to hear, to, to what we need to learn, what we need to see, and then mold us more and more into the image of you um, as we apply uh, the, the Bible principles to our life. And, and so, Lord, I pray that everything that is said today is, is true to your word. I pray that you're honored and glorified in it. I pray that you're honored and glorified through this whole service through our worship to you, through our fellowship that we have with each other through you, in which we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, uh, we've seen the number of, of new believers in, in Jerusalem that grown exponentially. You know, what started out as a group of 11 at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1 is now well into the thousands, even the tens of thousands. And for the Judaizers, or for the religious leaders of Israel, enough was enough. They had systematically ramped up their persecution through the early part of the book of Acts, from mocking, to detaining, to imprisoning, to beating, and then to killing. And once Stephen was killed, the floodgates of persecution opened fully, with no restraint. And it wasn't even confined to the apostles and the deacons, uh, of that Jerusalem church. That's, that's what we saw in the first seven chapters. It was all the apostles until you got to Acts chapter 7, and then it included uh, the deacon Stephen. Now it was going well beyond even to women of the church. We read that in verse 3. Saul was wreaking havoc on the church, and he and other Jewish leaders were trying to stamp out this Jesus uprising once and for all. I mean, they were literally trying to put an end to it. But that wasn't going to happen. You know, God had made a promise through Jesus back in Matthew 16, 18 that said, And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against it. And the gates of hell were being released in Acts chapter 8, but, but they weren't going to prevail. They ultimately didn't prevail. But it did require the believers of Jesus to have a biblical mindset and a biblical viewpoint regarding the multiple areas of their life and the different things they were facing in their life. And the same is true of us. If we want to continue to fulfill the mission that God has given us, if we want to take what we've been given and continue to pass it down and not have it die with us, which, you know, is, is always at risk, if we want to continue to be mission-minded, we need to understand the things that these first century believers understood. 
And it all starts with this. It's what we've been talking about already. We need a biblical viewpoint of persecution. We need a biblical viewpoint of persecution, what we deal with from the outside. You know, we've talked, we talked all through the month of September. We went through a, 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 that four-week series on issues facing the church. And we talked to some length about how both collectively and individually, Satan is always push, putting pressure on the church. He's always attacking the church on various fronts. We're always being attacked by spiritual wickedness in high places. That's obviously nothing new. It's always been present. It will remain so until the church is taken out. And the attack, the opposition the church was facing in Acts chapter 8 was this great physical persecution. And, you know, look back at verse 1 again. You know, you, you see it laid out specifically. And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death, and at that time there was a great persecution, a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So this was serious business. And, and listen, any opposition that the church faces, whether then, whether today, um, and in, in, including the great persecution of Acts chapter 8, it's, it's for a reason. See, Satan isn't just bored and, and purposeless. I mean, he isn't just out there going, you know, I, mean, I guess I got nothing better to do today, so let me, let, me, let, me go, let me go mess with this church. Let me go mess with that family, that believer. No, there's absolutely a plan that he has, and there is a strategy that he is employing. And that plan and that strategy has always been is still about eliminating or at least minimizing the effectiveness of the church or the believer for the cause of Christ. We know this from John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly, Jesus said. The thief, who is our enemy, the devil, has a plan. And that includes stealing and killing and destroying. Your peace, your joy, your witness, your effectiveness for Christ, and ultimately your life, both physical and spiritual. So if we don't have a biblical perspective and, and viewpoint regarding the persecution and trials we faith, face in this life, then we are in trouble. Because listen, he has a plan. That means we need a plan as well. We need a biblical plan to counteract his strategy against us. And the biblical viewpoint we must have in times of persecution and attack from the outside is this. This is just super simple, but it's the truth. God must be up to something good. God must be up to something good. Because we know that according to Romans 8.28, God works all things for good to them who love God and who are the called according to his purpose, right? That's what the Bible says. And that, that works all things for good. So it has to include persecution, because 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That seems to describe someone who loves God and is called according to his purpose. Someone living godly. And so if, if you're living godly, you're going to suffer persecution. That means God must be up to something good. 
This is the viewpoint we need to have, so don't be caught off guard. Just be ready for God to show up. That's, you know, 1 Peter 4. We know these verses, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of, the, of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. We're, we're, we're going to see that play out here in Acts chapter 8. And we're going to see this end with great joy. You see, there's always something good coming after the persecution if we can keep our mind in the right place. God's always up to something good. James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. I mean, that's pretty good. God's always up to something good. And here in Acts chapter 8, he was up to getting the message of Christ out to the world. Because if you remember back to Acts 1.8, he gave his apostles a mission, right? Many of you know where I'm going with this. You know what I'm talking about. But let me remind you, just in case. Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus said to his apostles you know, right before his ascension, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we talked about this in some length in, in chapter 1. We established this as the key verse of the entire book. He told them they were going to be witnesses both in Jerusalem, there in their home city, and in Judea, the surrounding state, so to speak, is what would have been considered the southern kingdom of, of Judah in the Old Testament, and in Samaria, which was sandwiched between Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. It would have been part of you know, the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Evil King Omri made Samaria the capital. Uh, and you can see that story in 1 Kings 16 um, of the northern kingdom. But then they were to go even beyond that to the uttermost or to the rest of the world. So that's God's plan for the church from the very beginning. But up to this point in history, the church hadn't left Jerusalem. They hadn't ventured into Judea or Samaria, let alone the uttermost. So it was time to get God's plan moving. And it was the persecution that led to this happening. You see, the circumstances from a worldly perspective were bad. But God was up to something good. He wanted to get his message to the world. And you can argue whether God caused this to happen because those Jerusalem believers wouldn't leave that city or if God just used it. But however it went down, it doesn't matter. Because God's always working and God's providence has eyes, so the route really doesn't matter. God's sovereignty wins the day. And this persecution scattered the believers, right? That's what we see in Acts 8.1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem at the home church. Okay, so now Acts 1-8 is being fulfilled in Acts 8-1. They're going, they're scattering. They're going into Judea and Samaria. And it doesn't take long for the witness to extend beyond Samaria. And the root of this expansion was the persecution. The very thing that Satan was trying to use to stop the work of God, God instead used for his own glory to accomplish his mission. He used it supernaturally to expand his kingdom because according to verse 4, when the believers scattered, they started preaching. 
Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And I want you to notice something that's very incredible that happened in a very short time, actually. If you just go down to Acts 9, just one chapter later. So, you know, in Acts chapter 9, another great chapter, we're going to see the conversion of Saul and, 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 and what all God did in that. And, 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 and then, you know, Saul's going back out and, and the believers are, are naturally scared of him because it's like, this is the guy that's been chasing us. This is the guy that's been, you know, pulling men and women out of their homes. And so they're, you know, they're a little scared, you know, but then, you know, the witness, the, the Ananias gives, or not Ananias, um, the, the apostles give um, witness to, to Saul that, of, of what he was doing and that he's, he's, he's on, you know, God's team now and everything's cool. And so it gives them rest. And this is verse, you see in verse 931, it says, then the churches, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria because Saul's not the persecutor anymore. And were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. But, but did you catch that? Then had the, the what? The churches, plural. And at the end, they, they were continued, they were multiplied. Before there was one church in Jerusalem. And now there are churches. And they're popping up everywhere, and churches are multiplying. And it's because God is always up to something good. And not even Satan can stop it. Only we can. That's the crazy thing about this. Satan can't stop God. Only we can. If we don't view things right, if we don't carry on the mission that God has given us. Listen to Joseph's account of his personal persecution back in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. He's talking to his brothers and what they did by selling him into slavery. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. God used it for good. What, what they meant for evil, what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. Because he's always up to something good. It's Paul's account as well. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But I... Would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in other places. The stuff I've faced, the things I've had to go through, that's fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. Because God's up to something good. But here's the key to all of it. For the early believers in Acts, for Joseph, for Paul, it only happened for them because they had a biblical viewpoint of the persecution. They understood that God was up to something. So they didn't see it from a, from a human logic standpoint that, man, this is, this is terrible. Oh, woe is me. I'm sure it didn't feel good. I'm sure they had their moments. But they're able to keep a biblical mindset because they didn't allow the persecution to drive them off the mission. In fact, they saw it as an opportunity and not an obstacle. And we need to do the same. Because listen, when our eyes focus on our circumstances, our faith is paralyzed. But when our eyes are focused on the opportunities, our faith is empowered. God shows up in a mighty way. Listen, if we just stay focused on what it is that we're dealing with, 
man, we, we get paralyzed in the moment. Oh, but if we can see beyond that and see that God is up to something, even if we don't know what it is yet, and move forward in faith, then, man, we can see our faith empowered and see God use us in a mighty way. A great example of this is Peter, right, as he's walking on the water. Matthew chapter 14, a popular story. The disciples are on the boat. They see a guy walking on the water in the sea. <clears throat> You know, something like that might catch you off guard, even though those guys have been with Jesus. It's not exactly an everyday occurrence. And they ask, you know, who is it? Some natural question. And, and the response they got was, it was the Lord. And Peter said, Lord, if, if, it, if it's really you, bid me to come. Let, let me come out there and walk on the water. And, and Jesus said, come on. And then Matthew 14, verse 29, and he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? I mean, Peter was going along, doing something incredible, right? Through the power of Christ. But all of a sudden, he, he took his eyes off of Jesus and, and what God was up to in the moment. And he put him on his circumstances. And he got caught up in the wind. And it says in verse 30, when he saw the wind boisterous. And, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, the interesting thing about that is you actually can't see wind. You just see the effects of wind. You can see the waves going high. You know, if you're, if you're out somewhere else, you can see the leaves blowing. You can see the effects of wind, but you can't see wind itself. But what he saw, what the effects of the wind, made Peter stop looking at Jesus and start looking at everything else, all the bad stuff that was going on around him. And what happened? When he was walking on the water and he becomes paralyzed and begins to sink, he stops. He's no longer walking. Now he's sinking. And, you know, and of course God saves him. But listen, we, we struggle with this as well. We let the circumstances of our lives and the effects of all that we're dealing with distract us and paralyze us with respect to the mission <clears throat> to the point where we just start drowning. We start drowning in our own despair in, in, in the stuff that's going on. And I'm not saying that you ignore the circumstances. You can't ignore them many times. God doesn't even necessarily ask us to ignore them. But, but I've, I've explained this to you before. The best way I have, I think this is a great example, is we have, you know, if you're looking at that, you're using more, Matthew 14 as, a, as an example. You have your circumstances. You have the effects of the wind and being blown about. And then you have Jesus walking on the water. And so what you have to do is you have to see your circumstances through the lens of Jesus. So you've got to put Jesus in front so you see him first. And yeah, the circumstances are still going on. The wind's still blowing. And you're able to, under, you understand that, you acknowledge it. But you see Jesus first. If, if you put it the other way around, if you see your circumstances first, you'll miss him. He's still there, but you'll miss him. He's behind the circumstances that you're dealing with. No, put him in front. Put him in the middle. Because God's up to something good. And, and even the winds get crazy at times. But God's up to something good. And, and listen, I know there are people in this room right now, and you're being whipped by the circumstances of your life. 
and you get up each morning and you walk out of, out of, get up out of your bed and the wind hits you in the face. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus knows. He just needs you to, he wants you, he desires for you to look at those circumstances through him. To see what he's doing. Because if you can see it right, he's up to something good. And if we can stay focused on him, then we can focus on what he has for us to do. Because there is a job to do. There's a job that he's called each and one of us, every one of us to do. Every believer in him. We have a job. And that brings us to the second area of life. Where a biblical viewpoint is needed to stay mission-minded. And that is, a, we need a biblical viewpoint of our purpose. <clears throat> and these go together. These go hand in hand. We've been talking about this point, actually, in the first point. But I just want you to see the distinction here. Because this is all about staying mission-minded. Because what did the Jerusalem church do when they were scattered? We already read it in verse 4. They preached the word. Look, look there again, verses 4 and 5. Therefore... They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. This is, again, this is what we've been talking about. Viewing your life's circumstances as an opportunity to share Christ and to carry out the mission, which is your purpose in life. And for these believers in Acts, it was time to go beyond Jerusalem. And so they did. And again, it doesn't really matter the cause, right? The persecution was the cause. But they took the mission seriously. They obeyed Acts 1-8 when they scattered. Because just consider the circumstances again. Saul was wreaking havoc on the church. He was hailing or hauling, dragging out, literally dragging out men and women from their own houses, and throwing them in prison. He was trying to destroy the Christ followers. He was trying to destroy them. He was being used by the devil in the fulfillment of 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, singing whom, seeking whom he may devour. And, and, and that word even, like you know, we saw in John 10.10, 10, he's trying to destroy, he's trying to devour. And if you go back to Acts chapter 9, when the believers were scared of Saul, even after his conversion, because they didn't know yet. I mean, that's the word they used. They said, wasn't this the guy that tried to destroy us, that tried to destroy the church? It's the same word used in John 10.10. 10. He's, he's, he's the fulfillment of, of the devil's goal in, in, this, in this plan, trying to destroy the church. It's what he was trying to do. And, and even by his own admission, he was more zealous than anyone about it. He had a hatred for believers, Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, for ye have heard of my conversation in time past <clears throat> in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church, beyond measure, and wasted it. It's, it's, it's the same word translated destroy. He wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. He's more zealous than all of them. In 1 Timothy 1, 13, he admitted to injuring the believer, speaking of himself, he said, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And those injuries included death. Acts 22, verses 3 and 4, giving his own testimony. I verily, a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up at the city, 
at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye, are, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And at a minimum, he was consenting and approving of Stephen's death. But, but I think it's safe to say it went much further than that and, and included others. And Saul was going house to house to do it. He wasn't just addressing it when he saw it. No, he was actively seeking it out. He was actively searching for believers to persecute them. And listen, he didn't just stay in Jerusalem. He was chasing them everywhere. As they scattered, he followed. In his own testimony in Acts 26, 11, he said, And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He was chasing them down. He was going outside. He was following them into Judea and Samaria. And I say all that because the natural response of most people dealing with that situation, at least as I see it today, would probably be to go hide, to lay low, to keep quiet and not bringing attention to yourself. But not this group, not Philip. They went about preaching the word, preaching Christ. They even cared enough. I just want you to see the detail of this. They even cared enough about Stephen to give him a proper burial. So do you think if, if Saul was bold enough to, to go into houses and, and pull people out, drag people out, both men and women, out of their own house, think he'd be scared to walk into a funeral and drag people out that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt are believers because they're there to honor Stephen? They didn't care. They did it anyway. Acts 8-2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And make great lamentation over him. And th these were devout men. And they knew that this might lead to their own death. But they did it anyway because Stephen deserved to be honored in that way. Because he meant something to them. He had invested in many of them, I'm sure. So they were sad about his death. They made great lamentation. Which is, this is just a side note here. It doesn't really have anything to do with our outline. But. You know, I just, I just want you to know it's okay, and we know this, but it's okay to be sad at the death of a believer. It's okay to be sad at the death of a loved one, right? I mean, we know where they're at, but they, these devout men made great lamentation. And that's okay. They were sad. It's okay to mourn and sorrow, but it just doesn't change our hope. We don't sorrow as, as someone that's hopeless like the world does. Because we're not hopeless, but we lament, and we should. It's not easy. And none of what they were going through was easy. They were facing intense persecution and intense sorrow, but they knew their purpose. So it didn't stop them. They knew what their life was to be about. And since they had a biblical viewpoint related to the persecution, that allowed them to stay focused and have a biblical viewpoint on their purpose. And in fact, you know, as, as we've been talking about throughout this whole time, their purpose was, to, was beginning to expand now. Because, like, look at where Philip went. He went to the city of Samaria, which was in the region of Samaria. So he went north when he scattered. And this is significant because if you remember back to the gospel, Samaria wasn't a place the Jews frequented because the Samaritans weren't a people 
the Jews liked. You can trace that history in the Old Testament and in the book of Kings and Chronicles and how all that came about. But even John 4, 9, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, said, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So they were part Jew, they were part Gentile. Maybe that's why Peter is the one that went and not the apostles. But it doesn't matter. A new door was opening. The transition was in its infant stages because ultimately the gospel was going to be open to everyone. And praise the Lord for that. Aren't we beneficiaries of that? But listen, that's always been God's purpose. Even when Israel was God's nation, he still wanted the world to, to recognize him for who he was. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing to any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as we're going to learn when we get to Acts chapter 9, that all is even going to include Saul, who at this point is the greatest persecutor of church the world had ever seen. But God changes him, turns him into the Apostle Paul. You know, I don't know how you measure this, but if you could measure it, it's probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. You know, wrote half of our New Testament books. Life is an amazing story. And, and, and what a great lesson and picture that is for us. We need to see that it is God's purpose for us to take the gospel everywhere and to everyone. We're to take the gospel everywhere and to everyone. Because all people, I think that's on, I think that's on your outline sheet. Take the gospel everywhere and to everyone. Because all people have the capacity to receive the gospel. And, and that's an important word. They have the capacity to receive the gospel. It's up to them because they have a free will. But it's not outside their choice. So it's not right to think that person will never get saved or that person will never get right. Even if it doesn't look good now. The picture of Saul in chapters 8 and 9 tell us anything. is that no one is outside the reach of Christ if they will just open their heart. So it's our job and our purpose to pray and to preach to that end because we do not know what God can do with one individual and how all that they went through might change them for the good. And, and I can't prove it, but I believe Stephen's prayer had a lasting impact on Saul and set the stage for his conversion in Acts chapter 9. I believe it was his prayer, and I believe it because there are, there are verses that point to that end. You have to make some inferences. I showed you one of them when we went through Acts 7. We won't go through it again. But it's, you know, our, our prayers aren't, aren't purposeless. And because of then Paul's thankfulness to the Lord, because of he understood beyond a shadow of a doubt who he was and what God saved him from and what he had done. And because of Paul's thankfulness to the Lord and, and what the Lord brought him out, out of, Paul always felt like he had a debt to pay. And of course, it wasn't the debt of sin. But Christ paid that in full. Paul preached that doctrine, the forgiveness of sins, but he felt a debt of thankfulness to fulfill God's purpose. And we should too. We should feel a debt of thankfulness to fulfill God's purpose. Paul said in Romans 1, verses 14 and 15, I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. 
1 Corinthians 9.16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity, a debt, is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. You know, Paul was a man that was certainly purposed. He was purposed in his persecution, and he was purposed in his preaching. And so we need to be purposed as well. We need to have a biblical viewpoint with respect to the persecution, the, the circumstances we deal with, and then what God wants to do in the midst of it, the purpose we have. And when we do, listen, cool things happen because God's always up to something good. So third, we need a biblical viewpoint on God's promise. A biblical viewpoint on God's promise because look at the result of understanding their purpose. Verse 6. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. And here we, we just see another instance of the people with one accord around the message of Christ. You know, th that's a key phrase in this book. And these are the new hearers in new parts, and they're in one accord, and they gave heed to what Philip spake, and what did he speak? He preached Christ. He spoke about Christ. And, and we're still in this transition time, so signs and miracles are still valid. They're still occurring. But, but just, that just shows that God was working. And the result was great joy. And this is the promise of God, that living a life of purpose will result in great joy. Living a life of purpose will result in great joy, both for you and that those that see and hear you. We know this to be true because joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, an occurrence from the, a fruit that comes from walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. This is a natural result of walking in the Spirit is joy. And again, consider the circumstances. And, and just consider the words. You see, you see the word great used three times. Because in the face of great persecution, verse 1, that led to great lamentation, verse 2. Yet we end this section of Scripture with great joy, verse 8. You see, the joy overwhelmed the persecution and sorrow. There was great persecution. There was great lamentation. There was great persecution. There was great sorrow. But the joy overwhelmed it. In spite of that great persecution, in spite of that great lamentation, there was still great joy. What a great promise that is. And this is so interesting to me on how God works all this because it is living in our purpose that brings us and others joy. But God also uses that joy as a great motivator to then continue to live in his purpose. God just works it from both ends. It's like, you know, the chicken or the egg, what comes first? There's an answer to that question, by the way, but we're not here to talk about it now. <laughs> it's because he's, he's just that good. And I mention all this because all too often, I, I believe we try to motivate Christians to, to witness and be a part of the mission by, by, through, through guilt. And you just don't see that in the Bible. It's to be a natural outflow of the joy we have received in Christ. This is what we just saw with Paul. 
he was a debtor, but not a debtor to his sin. He, he understood full well that Christ had paid for his sins in full. He felt that debt because of just the thankfulness he had. It was the joy that God had given him. It was a joy to serve the Lord, considering all that God had done for him. In spite of any bad circumstance, it's just the same thing. We see the same thing over and over again. Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18. Yea, it's Paul speaking. And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And we're left to the joy that we receive from the, the, what, the relationship we receive from Christ that we have with him to, to drive us to be part of the mission of God. It's what we see, that was Jesus, that's what he did. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, right? We have a purpose. We need to do this. How do we do it? We're, we look unto Jesus. We, we, we see him, right? We see our persecution. We see this race that we have through the lens of the Bible, but listen to the description of Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Like everything that he had to deal with, there, there was a joy that was set before him that allowed him to go through it. And this is an interesting passage. It's, it's a very deep passage. That, but, but I just want to, we're not going to go very deep, but I just want you to follow along for a second how Jesus was able to keep his eye on the mission that his father had given him and see that it was because of the joy that was set before him. You see, he understood the promise. Because we know from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, that that Jesus was going to come out of the tomb alive. And Jesus certainly would have known those verses as well and I think was probably smart enough to put it together. Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. For my flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There's great prophecy in this. In this passage, thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence. In the Father's presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Peter referred to this messianic psalm in his sermon in, in, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we see that in, in Psalm 16, David prophetically talking about Jesus. Speaks about the fullness of joy in the presence of his Father. Then also, Psalm 1, you see it in Psalm 16, but you also see it in Psalm 110, another messianic psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies a footstool. Peter referenced this in his Acts 2 sermon, that the Lord was going to set at his Father's right hand, that he was going to be exalted in heaven. There's, there's joy that comes from that for him. This was the joy that was set before him. It included Jesus completing his Father's will, his resurrection, his exaltation. But not only that, that wasn't the only joy. It wasn't just that he knew he was going to be resurrected and he knew that he was going to sit at his Father's hand. That wasn't the only joy. Because in Jude, 
there's only one chapter in Jude. Verse 24 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's what brought Jesus joy. The joy that was set before him was to do his Father's will and bringing people to his Father faultless in him, in Christ. That was the joy that was set before him. And, and do you know what? As we stay mission-minded and we have the right biblical viewpoint in these areas, we can do the exact same thing. We can serve God with our life in, in, in his will. And we can bring others to him as we preach the word, as we preach Christ. And the result, and, and we don't save them, that's, that's up to the Lord. But man, what joy we can experience from seeing people saved through, through the words that God gives us to share. To then be found faultless in Christ. What, what motivation then to keep doing it? Because of the joy that's produced in us and in others, those who become believers in Jesus and buy into the mission. What an amazing promise this is. But do you see being a part of the mission in that way? Do you see being part of the mission is through a biblical lens? Do you see it as the primary source of joy in this life and in the life to come? Is that how you see the mission? As your primary source of joy? The only real joy that you can experience? Does it bring you joy to serve Christ in this way in spite of your circumstances? And then use the joy that's produced to keep serving Christ and keep being a part of the mission? Allowing joy to beget more joy? And I hope you see it that way. But you never will if you can't see God's plan through the circumstances of your life. You will miss it if you can't see the struggles and the tribulation and the persecution as opportunities that God wants to use to work in and through you. You'll miss it if you can't see the purpose God has for your life. So we have a mission, and the time is short. We need to see our God-given purpose as the priority of our life, because it is. And shame on us for not viewing it that way. But we'll also never view it that way if we can't see the joy that is attached to it. God, who cannot lie, has promised a path of joy that supersedes our problems in this life. But you can only get it by doing things his way. So if you're missing out on joy this morning, why don't you quit living life on your own terms and with your own priorities and give the Lord what he deserves. He's pretty good at keeping his word. Joy is promised and joy is available. But you have to do it his way. Let's have every head bow and every eye closed. You know, this, this life isn't easy. And God certainly didn't ever promise that for us. But we do have the opportunity and even the responsibility to view it the way the Bible lays out. And to, to see God in it. And, and, and even, even if it's our own sin, certainly God was not in our, any of our own sin. 
but God certainly can be in us coming out of it. He can be in, in the restoration that's available. And the joy can, is, still, is still present and it's still available to anyone who's willing to walk the path that God lays out before him through his word. And so, man, it's, it's time for us to be serious about it, to be serious about the mission, to see in life and not getting caught up in the circumstances of this life, but seeing the opportunities that God gives us and be faithful to that. Let's do that to, to God's glory and for the good and the joy of, of our life, our family, and those that, that we know and love. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word and, and, and the truth that, that contains in it. Thank you for, for this set of, of verses that we looked at this morning, this section of Acts chapter 8. And, and I pray that you use it to motivate us, Lord, to, to get our lives where we need to be and serve you the way uh, that you deserve, just out of, out of a debt of thankfulness, um, you know, just out of, out of love uh, for you, uh, because you certainly deserve it. We're so thankful uh, for who you are, uh, for all that you do, and um, we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.